Hi, everybody, and welcome to another edition of the Albany Law School podcast. I'm Ben Myers, Assistant Director for Communications and Marketing here at the Law School. And today on the podcast, we are speaking with Judge Peter Crummy from the class of 1981. Judge Crummy is the Senior Colony Town Justice and a Court Administrator, which is a post he has held since January of 2000. And he began a two-year term as the newest president of the Albany Law School National Alumni Association on July 1st. He also maintains a practice of law in Albany, and he has been a longtime member of the NAA board and a passionate volunteer and advocate for Albany Law School. He's a lifelong resident of the town of Colony, which is a suburb just outside of Albany, and he has five children, including Catherine Crummy, who is a rising 2L, Carol Crummy, class of 2013, and Carol actually married an alum, John McCardle, from the class of 2013. So before we get to the judge, though, just a couple of reminders. We're getting really close to campus opening back up, and we want to make sure everybody has all the information they need. All of that can be found on the website, albanylaw.edu slash coronavirus. We have the return to campus plan. We have FAQs answered there. We have podcasts there. There is a video that the dean did answering more questions about the return to campus policy and you can also follow us on any social media platform twitter facebook linkedin even instagram to get more updates if you need them there and of course you can listen back to old episodes of the podcast like that faq podcast if you follow us on any of the major services or through our soundcloud account so let's get over and talk to the judge Back here on the podcast with Judge Crummy. Judge, if you'd just take a minute to introduce yourself to everybody listening to the podcast today. Well, thank you very much, Ben, for this opportunity uh, to speak with you today. Certainly very excited about Albany Law School's opportunities for not only the alumni, but also for our current students as well. Recently, I was elected as president of our National Alumni Association, which provides even more responsibility, uh, not only for our entire association, but it also puts our association on the board of trustees. So we have a voice on the uh, board of trustees to advance interests that are special and unique to the alumni association. We're very fortunate Uh, to be able to have a seat at the table there as well. And first of all, just want to say thank you for accepting that position as the president of the National Alumni Association. And it's, of course, a little early in your tender, but looking forward, what do you think over the next couple of years for the NNAA? What are you looking forward to most? My attempt will be to continue to maintain and enhance uh, the, uh, the excellent work that's been done Uh, by my predecessors and the entire uh, board of directors of the National Alumni Association. And a key focus of mine in early in my term will be to expand our AIM program, Alumni Initiative in Mentoring, which teams up graduates uh, from Albany Law School with current students so that they can share uh, their thoughts and uh, their wisdom with students. And I believe it's the best way not only to enhance our Albany Law School network, but to increase the value, not only of a diploma for those students, but also the value of our own diploma. As Albany Law School continues to move forward, it moves us all forward. So engagement, alumni engagement with our current students is vital to the future of Albany Law School. Being the leader of the Alumni Association now, what does it mean to be an alum of Albany Law School? 
Well, it means many things, but it, it including to be part of one of the most significant networks affecting the law and its application, not only in upstate New York, but clearly in the Capital Region. And speaking of the Capital Region, you're, of course, sitting on the bench in one of the busiest courts in New York, in Colony, and just take me inside your everyday experiences a little bit. There are thousands of cases on your docket annually. What's your everyday like? And then the world has changed in the last couple of months with coronavirus, of course. How has that changed things in Colony, too? Well, and you're right, Ben. Uh, the Colony uh, Justice Court is one of the busiest courts in the entire state of New York. In fact, in 2018, the Office of Court Administration New York State Office of Court Administration, ranked Colony as the 20th busiest criminal court in the entire state of New York, not town and village courts, all courts. So when you think about just the criminal calendar, and by the way, we also have an active civil calendar, but to be 20th in the state of New York in fingerprintable offenses is a rather dramatic and significant, especially for a court that is a part-time court, clearly with a full-time docket. So over the years, we have uh, managed to get through dockets, but it's a tremendous amount and too much pressure, in my belief, to put that kind of volume on a part-time court. And it's not just that we have criminal cases that are flowing out of colony arrest. We also have a variety of state agencies that have utilized our court for cases they wanted to bring. The Labor Department, environmental conservation, tax and finance, all kinds of cases have been brought into uh, the colony court alleging certain activity. And it's certainly the idea of a justice court which is certainly uh, identified in our New York State Constitution. And originally, the concept being brought brought over from England as part of our early days, our our colonial days of having a justice of the peace. What happens in colony now is probably well beyond what our founders thought a justice court should be. But nonetheless, we have been trying to respond. And I urge my town board Uh, which is responsible for the Colony Justice Court, like all town courts, to provide additional resources for us to be able to meet the demand. And oftentimes, my repeated petitions are met with uh, repeated silence. But nonetheless, uh, we are blessed with talented uh, staff, which are certainly primarily responsible for making sure that the court uh, is moving forward. And now, when we have the overlay of the shutdown, I've only recently reopened night court, and I can only do so with direct permission from the New York State Office of Court Administration. So I'm opening as they're allowing me to. And still, though, it'll never return to the way it looked of court nights historically, where there could be 200 people in a room Uh, whether they're the defendants, whether they're attorneys, whether they're friends of defendants. We have 200 people in the room and trying to manage the caseload just for criminal caseload. I don't see us ever going back to that based on what uh, COVID has brought to the world and how we are responding 
in the court system as we move forward. While I opened up the courtroom night court three weeks ago, and again had night court last night, I'm limiting the cases for a variety of reasons. We are, we must pay attention to social distancing, and we must set certain times for people to appear. No longer are 200 people directed to appear at six o'clock at night anymore. So I am staggering all of the appearances uh, as we move forward. And we're just at this point managing some of the cases for arraignment that have been waiting for arraignment since the shutdown. But I don't see as we move forward ever resuming court calendars in, in, a, in a session like we traditionally had. It'll no longer look like that, in my opinion, for as long as I'm there anyway. What will the court system look like? Is it going to always be these staggered starts? Is it going to be more technology involved? What do you think, since you work on all these things so often, what do you think the future of the court system might be in the next few years? Well, Ben, one of the key issues, and and which I've long argued for and petitioned for in my annual court reports, for 10 years I've been advocating for the opportunity to use video for arraignment purposes, wherein, and I've worked with the Albany County Sheriff for years, working on a program, and we established connectivity, where if a defendant was uh, uh, dropped off at the correctional facility, that they could access a judge through video and have a public defender or their own counsel of choice with them, either at the correctional facility or online with them in a Skype for business type setting. And I was, I was not ever granted the opportunity to do that, even though I proposed a test or a pilot program as Colony is often utilized to advance new ways for the court system or for, to, or for managing large amounts of caseload. And I was never given the option, but it's funny, COVID has actually brought through the New York State court system access to do video arraignments. So I must say that after 10 years of petitioning, it's funny how a particular epidemic can actually bring people to the table and realize there is value to doing it. And so we are engaged still in video opportunities. And I believe that will be that will be remain part of criminal justice in the local court system as we move forward. I do. That does not mean we won't have in-person court sessions. Of course we will. We'll even have in-person arraignments. But this option to have a video arraignment, which has long been embraced by the federal system for years, using video not only in criminal cases, but also probably in a variety of civil matters pending in the federal system. Likewise, I believe that the video will become a mainstay of the New York state court system as well. And that will also help to manage cases as we move forward. The other issue that I've implemented in order to keep the volume of people in the courtroom is basically giving attorneys the opportunity to work on their cases, criminal cases especially, between the defense and the uh, people to work on cases outside of the courtroom and contact me for personal involvement 
when they may need judicial intervention. Maybe they're ready for a plea and I'll create a plea docket. Maybe they need me to guide discovery. Maybe they're asking me to preside over pre-trial hearings. Happy to do any one of those things. But in the meantime, rather than bringing uh, defendants and parties back to the court every three weeks, only to be told we're not ready yet, seems to me to uh, be an unnecessary appearance in this day and age with the COVID overlay and the social distancing overlay. So creating control dates as opposed to appearance dates may help facilitate the progress of justice without unnecessary appearances and empowering attorneys to develop their cases outside of the courtroom, utilizing their own office, and as opposed to utilizing the courthouse in which to come to conclusions, they should be able to be empowered. And clearly, I'm sure attorneys can Zoom each other as they choose in order to manage cases that they wish to manage or use their telephones or fax machines in order to uh, gain progress on a case and consult with the court when needed. So I look forward to empowering lawyers to be able to do that on behalf of their clients and not necessarily have to invade the court system every three weeks with appearances on matters that aren't ready for judicial intervention. And we've been talking a lot about the future now, and I did want to take a little bit more of a look back at the past, because for those who may not know, there's a long legacy of the Crummy family here in the Capital Region, and especially at Albany Law School. And we're going to have a link to the show notes for a story about that legacy that was written by one of my colleagues, Lauren Minot. But for those listening who may not have had a chance to see that story yet, Judge Crummy, could you just recap the Crummy family legacy in the Capital Region and here at Albany Law just for a couple minutes? Well, I'd be happy to, Ben. And my grandfather, Edward J. Crummy, he was the grandson of a founder of a bakery here in Albany. And Michael Crummy came to Albany from Ireland in the late 1850s, 20 years old from Ireland. And he was a baker and he came to Albany and he opened up a bakery. And over time, the Crummy family bakery had no less than three locations in and around downtown Albany. And one of the locations, as you know, from an Albany Law School article was at the corner of Beaver and Lodge Streets, which, as we know now, is a parking lot. Also, the initial bakery was on North Pearl Street in the area of what is now the old Kenmore Hotel. And the last site for the Crummy Bakery was at the intersection, the then intersection of Hamilton Streets and Eagle Streets. That intersection does not exist anymore because the property, all the buildings in that area were removed in preparing for the South Mall in the early 60s. But the family had a very successful bakery and Michael's son, Charles, uh, continued uh, the bakery. And Charles had eight children, his oldest, Edward J. Crummy, who uh, was a student, uh, helped at the bakery and helped deliver baked goods by horse and carriage in and around downtown Albany, uh, but also uh, went ahead and he attended CBA, Christian Brothers Academy, when the school was in deep downtown Albany. 
uh, graduating from there, I believe, in 1904, then heading off to Georgetown University and graduating in 1908 and coming back to Albany, to Albany Law School, class of 1910. It was a two-year program back then. And he graduated from Albany Law School, married his childhood sweetheart, Rose Walsh. The Walsh family uh, came to Albany uh, back in the 1830s through uh, Montreal, I believe. The original Mr. Walsh came here to uh, to actually, uh, he uh, was a uh, Catholic, I believe, from Ireland, and his sweetheart was Protestant. And at that particular time, that relationship was frowned upon by a variety of beliefs back in Ireland at that time. And they, like so many of our ancestors, came to find the freedom that they thought would make them most happy. And they came through Canada, and he was looking for a job. And he was told that they were digging out the Erie Canal and uh, doing work down at the Port of Albany. And they were looking for more shovels. And they came down and set up uh, here in Albany, eventually uh, founding a, a store, W.E. Walsh & Sons, which was a landmark in the city of Albany from 1864 through 1977. And uh, Rose Walsh uh, married uh, his, her childhood sweetheart, Ed Crummy, and they moved to New York City to uh, find employment for him. His uh, uncle was Judge McCall in New York City, and uh, he had uh, helped uh, locate a position for my grandfather to uh, work in. And uh, ultimately, my grandfather found a job at City Hall in New York City in utility regulation. This is about 1915, 1916. Ultimately, he was engaged by a man who had the vision to connect all of the municipal electric power companies along Long Island. Each town had their own electrical system, and he had the idea that he would combine all of these electrical systems into one, which, of course, ultimately uh, became the Long Island Lighting Company and certainly was a uh, major factor on the economy and the development of Long Island in the 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s, and in, into the 60s as well. And uh, my grandfather worked there and ultimately retired out as chief counsel and secretary to the board. And his relationship with Albany Law School never, never wavered. And when I was applying to law school, of course, I wanted to make sure I applied to Albany Law School as well, which I did. And I was fortunate enough to be granted admission. And we're happy to have you as part of the family. And obviously, there's so much love and pride that's in those kind of stories, in that kind of legacy. But why do you think Albany Law School was the choice? Why do you think this has all happened here at Albany Law School for you? Well, Ben, my guess is is that because my family settled here, my dad's side of the family settled here, and that uh, Albany Law School was just as significant and as prominent uh, in the 1900s as it is today, and it would. And he went to Georgetown, so he certainly had exposure to other cities, uh, possibly other law schools as well. But he was determined to return to Albany to go to attend Albany Law School. So obviously he found that that would be the degree and the education best suited for him 
and uh, and um, I think he was correct. I think he made the right choice, and uh, and it's the choices that our ancestors make or those alums that go before us that can give us a roadmap for our happiness and our futures as well, and which ties into our mentoring program that we have here at Albany Law School today to show others the way and to enhance the value of all of our, uh, the value of all of our diplomas by the choices that those who went before us made. And I certainly believe his exposure to Albany Law School and his family, the strong family ties between the Walsh family and the Crummy family in the 1800s and 1900s were certainly a magnet for him to want to be here. And of course, it, it came down to me as well. I had considered other law schools as well as many should, just to make sure you have applications in a variety of places. But my aunt, the daughter of my grandfather, wanted to make sure that I applied to Albany Law School. And she insisted on paying the application fee of $10 back in 1978. And she did. The, the family that I had then living in Albany, the Walshes and the Crummies at the time, um, were all very supportive of my attendance at Albany Law School. And I didn't realize it at first why it was so important to them, too. But I'm beginning now to recognize as well um, the value um, that they saw in it and how important it is to all of us and to the rest of my family. And now I have two of my daughters, uh, one graduating from Albany Law in 2013 and a rising 2L at Albany Law School. One thing that we always have here on the Albany Law School podcast, though, is the lightning round. Are you ready for the lightning round? I'm ready to go, my friend. All right, here we go. We've been talking about family. It's a big part of your life. But what's your favorite family tradition? You know, it, it can evolve over time. I have I'm blessed with five children. And when they're all when they're all under 12, certain things can be relevant at that time. Now you have a situation where my oldest is 33 and my youngest uh, is 22. And so opportunity can change. So unlike my favorite family tradition, when they were all little of having dinner together every night, Um, except those nights I was out at the courthouse or at a zoning board meeting or a county legislative meeting, I always insisted on a family dinner. You make it and enjoy it. And those are valuable times. Now that they're grown and people and some of my children live in different areas, um, not they don't all live in Albany currently, some down in Brooklyn. You need to look at what makes sense today and what has been a time-honored tradition despite their age and despite where everyone lives, is certainly Christmas Eve. And that remains, uh, that remains a very uh, vital and uh, important tradition for me, my children, and now uh, son-in-laws, and now two grandchildren as well. So Christmas Eve remains currently uh, a very special tradition um, in in our life today. Well, congratulations on the grandkids. Yeah, ours is similar. Thanksgiving dinner—that's the number one 
the tradition in the Myers yes. household. So definitely yes. here Absolutely. on that. Absolutely. The next one here on the lightning round, what does a judge do for fun? I know every year you have a tradition where you read the Declaration of Independence. I know that was on the radio this year. Just what does a judge do to relax a little bit? Well, that that is certainly a, a very uh, special a moment for me each year. I was asked about 16 years ago by one of the neighborhood associations in Colony, if I would publicly read the declaration on July 4th at 11 a.m. And I have each year and enjoyed that document in so many different ways. Not only is it a passionate document, but also it underscores what was sacrificed by those people who signed that document. Many of the signers were uh, either killed, captured, their families were taken away from them, their homes were burnt to the ground. So they sacrificed a tremendous amount to be able to provide a new way of governance that we enjoy today. And sometimes all of us have to recognize historical perspectives and what was on the line at the time. I certainly encourage civics as a continued study And I know there's great emphasis now in school systems to focus on STEM, but I do believe civics education is imperative for our students to understand where we were, how we got here, and what we should do as we move forward. Very powerful. And so I do enjoy that reading and understanding its history. But I also like to do other things, as as many of us do. I follow the sun. I will. Um, I like being outside. I don't mind being outside, uh, whether it's under a hose, at a pool, at a lake, at the beach. I like it all. I don't mind doing outdoor work around the property. That seems to never end, right? All of this, all <laughs> of the does. things you, you can, yeah, that you can find yourself doing outside in any given afternoon or a day on the weekend. But I enjoy all that, and um, I, I enjoy doing that kind of work. I enjoy cooking too. Which, by the way, that means I enjoy eating, too. So all of those things uh, provide, uh, provide a lot of uh, fun and focus. Keep your mind thinking about a variety of different things as well, which I, too, I do enjoy. And I like music as well. My son has put together my top 100 for me. He's loaded them on an iPod. And I've just picked songs out that meant something to me um, ever since I was a child. And then I can listen to them and now you have you have like spotify and all these other uh engagements that can allow you access to so many songs that you might enjoy so um, when i go on walks now i i take some spotify with me as well so i'm enjoying that as well outdoors is a great place to be you got to give us a title or two now off of your playlist we need a we need a title that's that is really hard to do of course he's named it um, you know, dad's top 100. So, but he told me now we've moved into about 130 pieces, but it's, it's too, it's, it, it's too difficult because it is wide and varied, um, spanning uh, decades of music, even some that were long created before I was even born and some very recent as well. I find that uh, regardless of the decade or the generation, there's great music to be had. And uh, we'll continue to expand it and 
it's, it's too difficult to just pick one or two because it, that might try to define what it really is. But each one has its own meaning to me at one point or another. Um, we, can, we can start at Haydn's Surprise, which is hundreds of years old, and, uh, and um, all the way up to uh, much more uh, current uh, songs, uh, either from uh, possibly 21 Pilots or Portugal the Man. So I try to stay relevant, but I find each generation has fabulous entries for me, and I enjoy it. And sometimes when you're just driving in your car from point to B, A to B, it's fun to have a little music uh, with you as well, or on a walk. So I enjoy it. Finish this one up here for you, Judge Crummy. On the question we always close out the podcast with, is there anything you would like to say to the law school community at large? We have obviously students coming in for the fall 2020 semester. We have ones that are preparing for the bar exam, even with all those challenges. We have young alumni out there. We even have some more uh, veteran and experienced alumni to listen to the podcast. What would you like to say to them? Well, there's no shortage of things, items I'd like to bring to everyone's attention. Certainly, again, encouraging alumni participation in our alumni initiative and mentoring. Provide some time from your busy practice or your busy day to make yourself available in a variety of different formats for our current students. And we continue to expand that program. You know, I've said before, and I'll say it again, our happiness lies in the happiness of other people. Give them their happiness and you will get your own happiness. I saw that recently in a Harvey McKay syndicated column that's printed in, among other places, in our local Times Union newspaper every Tuesday. But I believe in that. So if we can provide happiness to our graduates, I, I believe we'll find happiness in that as well. It's also important to note that Albany Law School is not only integral to my family and to the families of other graduates, but it's also integral to the capital region as a time-honored source of community pride. And I believe Albany Law School remains a vital element in the definition of the capital region. So I can leave you with that, Ben, and I thank you very much for providing an opportunity to share some ideas with you, as modest as they are, for sure. Judge Crummy, we really appreciate you taking the time to be on the podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Ben. 